This is The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. David is the senior pastor of Calvary Chapel Casa Grande in Casa Grande, Arizona. You see, faith in Christ is not about a simple prayer that you say at the end of a pamphlet or at uh, at an altar or in a back room or even on your bedside. Faith in Christ has to go much more than that. Does that begin the journey for many? Yes, it does. The fact that though... Coming to Christ is a simple thing. It's not a simplistic thing. That the work of God in a believer's life is something that is continual and ongoing. In this introduction to Romans, we will be taking a tour of the greatest gold mine known to man, examining gold nuggets such as the depth of our faith, the sinner's prayer, and the ongoing work of God in our lives. We'll look at Martin Luther's experience with the Book of Romans and the birth of the Protestant Reformation. The Book of Romans has been a goldmine to believers from the time it was written and still remains a monumental producer of invaluable nuggets today. Well, let's join Pastor David in the Book of Romans chapter 1 with part 1 of our message entitled, The Goldmine. Well, this morning I want to take you on a tour. How many of you have ever gone on a mine tour? Those deals where they put bring you in there and it gets like dark and scary and wet and all. Those. Well, today is uh, we're going to take you on a mine tour, and it's uh, maybe a little bit different than what you've uh, done in the past. Uh, the first one I want to speak about is actually a mine that's uh, in Ontario, Canada, the Red Lake Mine. The Red Lake Mine in Balmer Town, uh, Ontario, Canada, actually started around 1926. There was a bit of a gold rush up in this area of Canada, and a lot of uh, would-be millionaires came into that area to start uh, not only panning for gold, but digging for gold and uh, looking around. And for a few years, they played around with that area. The Red Lake Mine at that point in time was just a few guys that uh, tried uh, their best to do something. And things kind of died out and played out for a while, and everything kind of went into a rest. A few guys still working around there for a while. And until about 1944, near the end of uh, World War II, and suddenly interest started growing in Bombertown and in particular in the Red Lake Mine. 1944, they started with a little bit more aggressive efforts to dig and mine in the area. And now today, that mine in Bombertown has now grown to be actually the largest gold mine in the world. They produce more gold out of that mine than any other gold mine in the world. It's interesting. They're, uh, in 2007, they actually took out 700,600 ounces of gold out of there. Now, if you figure out, you know what the price of gold is today? Uh, we found out uh, just this week gold ended at uh, over $1,000 an ounce. So that's a tremendous amount of gold that's coming out of there. Right now, currently, they're taking around 635 tons of ore out of that mine every day. And for every ton that they bring out, they get two ounces of gold. Now, that's a lot of ore for just two ounces of gold. But by the time you figure 635 tons a day... However many days that they do that, if they do it 364 days, take a day off for Christmas, uh, that ends up currently around 463,550 ounces of gold. You do the math on that at $1,000 a piece, well, that comes out to nearly uh, half a billion dollars a year of just gold. 
Now, along with the gold, they also bring out other precious metals. Uh, other metals often are found where gold is found. So, again, the Red Lake mine is a, a very good producing mine. Now, I guarantee you that they probably check the uh, miners' pockets as they come out of that thing just to, just to watch and make sure that uh, with that much uh, that's going through there, uh, it's, I'm sure that there's a, a lot of uh, gold dust, gold filings, uh, all those kinds of things around. But I want to take you to a little bit different one. The mine that I want to speak about today is actually we are going to allow you to go through this mine. And if you find a gold nugget, you're more than welcome to pick it up and put it in your pocket. As a matter of fact, if you go through there and you find a little stack of gold nuggets, I'm going to encourage you to grab those and put them in your pockets, and they'll be yours to keep. Nobody's going to take those away from you. In fact, if we go through there and we find this vein of gold in there, this big, huge vein, I'm going to encourage you to take chisel and hammer and start whacking away at that dude until you get just as much as you can. The gold mine that we're talking about today is the book of Romans. The book of Romans, really and truly, folks, is a gold mine of Christian doctrine. Within the book of Romans, you're going to find more fundamental truths of the Christian faith than any other book in the Bible. As a matter of fact, I would say it's much more than a gold mine of Christian doctrine. It is the gold mine of Christian doctrine. Because within it, we're going to be looking through over the next probably few months doctrines that you hold to that you may not even know why you hold to them. Uh, beliefs that you've come to believe as a Christian, and you may not know that, man, the foundation of that was found in the writings of Paul in the book of Romans. Romans was written by the Apostle Paul sometime between 55 and 58 A.D. It was written while he was staying in Corinth, and it's an interesting thing. The church there in Rome, Paul had never been to, but he had heard quite a bit about it. People that he knew had come and gone from that church there in Rome. The church there in Rome was made up of both Jewish believers as well as Gentiles or pagans who had come to faith in Christ. And so Paul was writing to them, and he writes that he has an Anticipation to see them soon, but before he comes to see them, he wants to write and give them some, uh, again, instruction and stability and the truth of the Word of God so that they can get a good and solid foundation. Throughout the book of Romans, as I said, we're going to find nuggets all over the ground that we can pick up and we can start, again, having as our own. Some of those nuggets that we'll be looking at is the whole idea of the depravity of man and the holiness of God. The depravity of man and the holiness of God. Now, for most of us, you think, well, that's a no-brainer. We understand that, that God is holy and man is depraved, but... We're going to be looking at, again, the, 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 the vast difference of the holiness of God and the depravity of man and all that God had to do in order to bring us to himself. One of the other nuggets we're going to look at is the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. And once we hopefully can grasp an understanding of that, man, what a precious understanding that is, the greatness of the sovereignty of God, the fact that God is God all the time. He is always God. He always is in control. And as we shared as we were going through the book of Kings, even in the midst of the chaos, God is in control. That's what the sovereignty of God deals with. And the fact that he knows today and tomorrow and yesterday better than you and I know right now. He sees it. He knows it. 
It's there. He's beyond time. He's beyond space. And this other little idea of the free will of man and how that works with the sovereignty of God. And there's going to come times as we're going through the book of Romans that if you know anything about this struggle, this theological struggle or battle that's, that goes on continually within the church, this idea of Calvinism versus Arminianism, and if you don't know what it is, by the time we get through Romans, you'll have at least a pretty good clue of what the two camps are. Now, I am not Calvinist. Neither am I Arminius. However, one of the things that absolutely amazes me is those folks who are Calvinist or Calvinistic. It's amazing how many things they believe in that I believe in, but I'm not a Calvinist. It's amazing how many things Arminius believe in that I believe in, too. But I'm not an Arminius, and we'll look at those things. I'm just kind of throwing that out as a teaser for you. It does deal very much so, though, with the sovereignty of God and the free will of man and the depravity of man and the holiness of God. All of these issues Paul is going to deal with in the book of Romans. One of the other nuggets that we're going to look at is Israel. Israel's past, Israel's present, Israel's future. It's interesting that Paul really hits on this, and we have a better understanding of what God's plan is for Israel in the book of Romans probably than anywhere else. You think, well, how does that come about in the book of Romans? Believe me, Paul understands what God is doing in the nation of Israel. You think, well, Israel, aren't they done with? Isn't God done with them? No, he's not. It's Paul that tells us that they've been blinded for a season, for a time, the time of the Gentiles, in order that you and I might get a real clear picture and understanding and might come to faith in who the Messiah is. And that present day, right now, even in their fallen state, God is working and ministering in Israel's life. And that really amazes me, too, because Israel, by and large, is... Probably the best thing I could say is they are a secular nation. I could even go far as to say that they're a pagan nation. One of the things that we found out over the last couple of years as we've been going to Israel is that Tel Aviv, which is the international capital of Israel, though Israel recognizes Jerusalem, Tel Aviv is busy and as metropolis as it is. It is number one homosexual community in the world right now. That kind of blows you away. It did me, too. I mean, passing over uh, Sweden and other nations that we would think, uh, San Francisco, other nations that we would think, the per capita homosexual population in Tel Aviv is greater than any other town or city in the world. And that's mind-blowing until you stop to think the history of Israel and the pagan influence that they always fell prey to. As we went through the book of Kings, and time and time and time again, God would tell them, don't go the pagan way. Don't go the way of those who uh, were the nations that I told you to drive out. But time and time, they kept falling back into it. But you know what? There is a glorious future that yet awaits Israel. And God has that plan. God has that all in store for them. But you know what? Israel, the only way that Israel is going to come to eternal life in the presence of their God is when they come to faith in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Israel is not saved any other way than anyone else is. They will have to come personally to faith in Jesus Christ. It's not going to be a national thing that just suddenly, because you are Israeli, you are born again. No, it's going to be a personal 
understanding that, you know what, we missed Messiah when he came 2,000-some-odd years ago. But now we understand. Paul says that to them is all the promises and all the prophets and the law. And when they come to understanding, man, what a strength that's going to be. And the word speaks to us not only there in Romans, but also in the book of Revelation, that a great outpouring of God's Spirit will come, and and multitudes, 144,000, are going to become on fire for the Lord. And they're going to be proclaimers of the truth of God's Word and of the hope that's found in Messiah Jesus Christ, and we're going to be looking at that, and we'll dwell into that a little bit deeper as we go. One of the other nuggets that we're going to look at is the life of faith versus the life of works. The life of faith versus the life of works. Many people say that, well, in Paul's writing, Paul speaks so much about grace that it's not of our works, and he speaks this also in Titus and in Ephesians as well as in Romans. That Paul continually speaking about the grace of God, that for Paul, he's not that interested or that works are not that important. And that James uh, actually kind of plays down the idea of grace and speaks much more about the works that we need. Well, that's a gross misunderstanding of both of these authors and both of these books. Because both of these men know that it is the grace of God that saves But yet, if you are truly born again, there will be works that follow. Your life will be a demonstration of the reality of Christ in you. One of the biggest struggles that Roman Catholicism has with uh, evangelicals in particular, but the Protestants uh, in general, is that we speak of this grace of God without putting any kind of emphasis on the works. And the Roman Catholicism says, all you guys say is, all you have to do is say this magic little prayer, and suddenly, boom, you're fine, you're in, you've got your railway ticket to heaven, you've got your fire escape from hell, and that's all that you have to do. And beloved, if that's what you believe, let me tell you, you are grossly misunderstanding what true faith in Christ is all about. You see, faith in Christ is not about a simple prayer that you say at the end of a pamphlet or at uh, at an altar or in a back room or even on your bedside. Faith in Christ has to go much more than that. Does that begin the journey for many? Yes, it does. The fact that though coming to Christ is a simple thing, it's not a simplistic thing. That the work of God in a believer's life is something that is continual and ongoing. One of the other nuggets we're going to look at is the sinful nature of man and this imputed righteousness. We've shared with you guys before about the fact that we are born in sin. There's no doubt about that. All you have to do is look at a little one, and it it won't take too long until young Ryan here is going to show his sinful nature when he starts saying no and when he starts rebelling. It doesn't take too long for us to understand that they're born into sin, and they just they act like sinners, as cute as they are, as adorable as they are. And you don't have to teach us to be in rebellion. We're born with that nature. And you know what? That's the sinful nature that comes to us from the fall of Adam and for generations through generations through generation. Many people ask, well, are we sinners because we sin or do we sin because we're sinners? And the simple answer is yes, both of them. We sin because we're sinners and we're sinners because we sin. We have a sinful nature, but even within that, we make choices. But the great thing is that when Christ was crucified, as he was hanging on that cross, the Word of God says that he became sin for us. He bore all of our sin. 
and we received in that deal what is called the imputed righteousness of Christ. And that word imputed is, is an accounting term. It says it was placed onto our account. The very righteousness of Christ was now placed on our account and to where now we are looked at as righteous because of the blood of Christ. And what a glorious picture that is and what a, a great promise that is, is that it even pleased God to lay upon him our sin. And that blows me away. That God loved me so much that he not only would send his son to go through all the misuse and the attacks of the human race upon him, but even to the point of his crucifixion and the horribleness of that death, that God loved me so much that he would do all of that. But then on top of that, that he would place upon the one who is righteous, the one who is holy, the one who knew no sin, the one who is always obedient to his Father, that he would place upon Jesus the sin of mankind. And when those very words that Jesus spoke on the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I believe it was because at that minute the very sin of the world was placed upon Christ and the fellowship that the Son had with the Father for eternity past was suddenly broken for that moment of time until sin was paid for and done away with. And because of that, the imputed righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, is allowed to be available to us. As Paul wrote this book, he was writing, and you have to understand, he knew he was writing to a particular church, but I don't understand and I don't believe that he knew that he was also writing to us today. But 1,500 years after he wrote that, a young Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther was struggling so vehemently with his own life and the weaknesses of his own flesh and the frailty of his own spiritual life. He figured, if I become a monk, then perhaps I can gain control of my sinful nature. If I can seclude myself away from everything that tempts me, everything that would draw me away from knowing and loving God, then perhaps I could get a handle on all of this and I can live as truly a believer and as one who is holy and righteous before God. But one thing that Martin Luther didn't understand at that point in time and that many people even today don't understand is that wherever you go, that's where you're at. You understand what I'm saying? Wherever you go, that's where you're at. Martin Luther had to come to the same understanding that you and I have to come to. Most often, it's not the influences of the world, but it's the influences of our own mind and our own heart. Martin Luther used to come to a point, uh, even as he became a monk, and and he, he would still have sinful thoughts and sinful attitudes, and he would literally take a whip and he would beat himself, trying to, as the word says, bring his body under subjection. Again, to say, I don't want to live this way. I need to have control. I need to have spiritual control over my body. He would literally go out in those cold winter months and lay naked on the snow to try and bring his body and his mind under control. And yet out of frustration, years and years of frustration of trying to control his heart, control his mind, control his spirit, it wasn't until he read the book of Romans 
and began studying it, that suddenly his eyes were open. And when he read there in that first chapter, there in verse 17, where it says that the just shall live by faith, suddenly God began to open up his eyes. The just shall live by faith, not by works. And with that, God began to open up the eyes of Martin Luther and began the birth of what we know as the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation. It was Martin Luther who went and nailed to the Wittenberg Castle door the 95 uh, declarations of, again, the problems that he had biblically with what was going on with the church at that point in time. One of those things that he wrote and one of the main arguments that he had was this idea of indulgences. Indulgences. In other words, I could go out and sin this week as long as I came this week and I paid a little bit extra into the offering bag. And for differing sins, there was differing amounts that you could pay, and that was okay. And the priest kind of worked out this thing that, uh, well, for this sin, it's going to cost you this much. For that sin, it's going to cost you this much. It's a great thing if you've got a building program going on. And believe me, the church had some major building programs going on. You see the huge cathedrals that were built in Europe during those times. Why? Because of the sinful nature of man. You sinner, we're not going to do anything about your sin. You just keep paying for your sin, and we'll pray to God that he'll forgive you. What a sad thing that is, that for years and years and years, the church was doing that to people, and people never had a release from their sin, never knew true forgiveness of their sin, but they thought that they could buy forgiveness by a little bit extra within the offering plate that week. Martin Luther, from that, began what is called the Protestant Reformation, and you are part of that Protestant Reformation. Do you know what Protestant means? It means one who protested. And we were protestors of what the church was doing and the doctrine of the church at that point in time. Because we started realizing, no, the word of God is our authority. Not one man living in some uh, castle or some great uh, building complex on the other side of the world. No, not one man, but it's the word of God that strengthens us, that gives us the understanding of who God really is. Martin Luther, as he was writing about the book of Romans, wrote these words. It is the most important piece in the New Testament. It's purest gospel. It is well worth a Christian's while not only to memorize it word for word, but also to occupy himself with it daily as though it were the daily bread of the soul. Memorize the book of Romans word for for word. It's interesting. I love what Pastor James is doing with the youth. He's encouraging them and challenging them to memorize portions of Scripture, not just a little word here and a little word there, but portions of Scripture. Uh, some of them actually uh, memorized, I think it was First John chapter 1. I know Steve was the first one to do it. I was really encouraged by that, and Ricardo was the second one. I think some of the others are still working on it, and he's going to continue challenging them. Again, King David said, Thy word have I hidden my heart, that I might not sin against thee. What a great thing it is to have the word of God within our hearts and minds. Martin Luther said, you know, you and I, just as individuals, ought to memorize the book of Romans word for word. Man, that's a challenge. That is a challenge. But I tell you what, it would be a worthwhile challenge for any of us. Not only did 
the book of Romans influence a man like Martin Luther and catapult us into the Protestant Reformation. But 200 years after Martin Luther, along comes a fellow by the name of John Wesley. John Wesley and his brother Charles Wesley and George Whitfield were responsible for what's called the Great Awakening, both in Europe as well as in the United States in the mid-1700s. A great sweeping of the Spirit of God through communities and through counties and through literally nations, to where within many of these cities and towns, bars were closing down because people were getting born again and on fire for the things of God. Houses of ill repute were shut down because men no longer went to them because their hearts were changed. Men started coming home from work and spending time with family and getting to know their children because the Spirit of God was changing them. Thanks for joining us for today's edition of The Open Word. Pastor David will continue verse by verse through the book of Romans next time. It's been said that if a believer were to drop their Bible on the ground, it should fall open to the book of Romans. Why, you might ask? Because this book is packed full of doctrine that we truly need to grasp as believers in Jesus. Or maybe you're listening today and you haven't placed your faith in Jesus yet. We encourage you to continue tuning in Monday through Friday as Pastor David shares insights from this book. Pastor David will be teaching through this book with hopes that all those tuning in each day here on The Open Word would either be saved or be encouraged in their salvation. If you're like most people, you probably use a smartphone. Once you subscribe to The Open Word Podcast, you'll always have solid Bible teaching available to you anywhere, anytime. So log on to TheOpenWord.com and subscribe to The Open Word Podcast. And to become our Facebook friend or to follow the Open Word Twitter feed or to access the archive of messages, log on to theopenword.com. Well, that's all the time we have for today. We invite you to join us again for the next study of Pastor David's teaching through the book of Romans. That's next time on The Open Word.